0: This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, March 18th, 2018. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Mm-hmm.
1: Today's reading is uh, 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh in the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way
0: God does. Praise be to God. Have a seat. We are going through 1 Peter, verse by verse. And if you had one of these sermon cards, which I have, because on one side is the reading schedule for our church um, just reading through the Bible um, five days a week. I'll have another one next week that will take you through the next 20, well, week 13 through 24. The other side has the sermons listed. You'll notice we're a little out of order just because of sicknesses and surgeries and all kinds of things. So we are uh, closing out on First Peter pretty soon here. We'll be at the end um, uh, right after Easter. If you pray with me, we'll ask that God moves me out of the way and says what he has to say to you. So bow with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for your word. You are a mystery to us, Lord, and there's things that you have left mysterious about you that we will not and cannot know. But your word says there's much you have revealed, and that by your word. And your word has the power to change us from the inside out. And so, Lord, I ask that you'll move me out of the way, and by your Spirit, use your Word to change us. Help our hearts and our heads be soft enough to receive your Word. And bring the Word that we need, Lord. Words of conviction, words of comfort, words of instruction, words of direction. Whatever it is we need, Lord, you know. And those who are gathered here, Lord, need to hear this word. I believe that. But I'm not worthy to say anything. So Lord, let your words come through so I don't screw it up. And let the name and the face and the work of Jesus be more glorious to us and call us to a greater level of identification with him, Lord, and whatever that means. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, welcome. It's a sermon about suffering. Suffering. The second half of uh, Peter's letter, his epistle here, is a lot about suffering as a Christian. And I know when we say the word suffering, that means lots of different things to lots of different people. And so who Peter is writing to here, he is specifically writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith as they live in the world. And he has told us up to this point in different ways that unjust suffering is something to be expected, even embraced. It's a difficult thing and it's a gracious thing. That this kind of suffering is a painful thing, but it's also a God-pleasing thing. That this kind of suffering is something that we're actually called to. Called to as Christians. To experience and to endure like Jesus. Now, our Savior example reminds us of something that we quickly forget. And I speak to those who call themselves Christians now. We have this idea that if we're faithful, life will be easy. That the more we're faithful, the more comfortable things will be. And wrong. The most faithful, perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient, person that ever lived, Jesus Christ, suffered. His example should show us that even with our perfect faithfulness, which none of us will achieve, we should expect to be mistreated. Our experience should be difficult in this world. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that indeed all Who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, earlier, Peter had employed this image from Genesis chapter 6 to describe the world that these Christians he's writing to perhaps live in. It's an interesting image to kind of insert into there. It's Noah's day, probably of Noah's ark that he built, but if you look back in Genesis 6, as he calls Noah to this incredible mission, he describes the world in interesting words. He said it's corrupt in God's sight. He says that the world is filled with violence. It is full of wicked men whose only intentions and thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. It was really a bad place. And one man and his family are called out of this really bad, wicked place and given this mission. Saying this flood's going to come. I'm going to wipe it clean. And I want you to do this. And by that, your family will be saved. And so Noah and his family placed their trust in God's Word that this thing was going to happen. They staked their reputations and their whole lives on this Word that was yet to be fulfilled. They were all in. They started this, this building project, this immense building project by hand. And they built this huge ark. probably took them 50 to 75 years. So they put their faith in a word that wouldn't see fulfillment for what today would be a lifetime. Like we talk about faith for like, well, I'll put faith in you, God, if you come to bring it about like tomorrow. I'll trust you. Okay, I'm going to put my faith in you, but I don't see it after a month, and I don't know if I can trust you. 75 years! 75 years putting their faith in what God said. Their project required all of their time, all of their energy, all of their resources. I dare say that their entire lives were focused on what God told them to do. Now, Jesus continues to save sinners out of a very similarly dark world. Well, I could read Genesis 6 and we are like, huh, that must have been really bad back then. It's bad now. It's been bad since Genesis 3. When the first sin after the fall of man is murder within a family, it's going to get worse from there. It's bad. So he saves sinners out of this world and he brings them into his family and he puts them on his mission. And these people whom he calls out of the world, they trust his word though they don't always see every promise fulfilled in their lifetime even. Or just in the timelines they expect. But they trust His Word. And those who truly trust His Word begin by identifying with Jesus through baptism, right? What is baptism? This is what Peter had been talking about. These people in this dark culture, in this this, evil, wicked culture that, that they're living in, are being baptized, which today, as Andrew referenced, isn't the same even today as in the world in other places. But back then it was hugely significant when you immersed yourself, your whole body goes under the water, and in doing that you are symbolically surrendering every aspect of your life to Jesus. You're declaring that what I was is gone, what I am is in Jesus and new and for Jesus. And the thing about that, we don't experience this today. I would argue that it's possible other parts of the world experience this. But when you get baptized today, in this culture, in this place, in Snohomish, in Snohomish County, whatever, you get baptized, so what? Who says anything other than your family like, yeah, woo, Awesome. Dare I say, I don't know if it costs us anything like it costs them, like it costs others. Because as soon as someone was baptized in this moment publicly, their life got harder immediately. Our life doesn't get harder when we get baptized. Peter says more than once, Christians, as he's talking as Christians, like, you are called it's your job. It is your privilege to suffer. What? What? To suffer socially, to suffer materially, to suffer emotionally, even physically, like Jesus. Now, I would argue that that kind of suffering is very difficult for those of us who live in America. I don't think we really have a sense of it. I mean, we suffer. Someone might, you know, blast you on Facebook. Ooh, like how horrible. But I believe as, as Andrew shared last week, we, we live in a world, that I think we underestimate how devoted we are to comfort and devoted to pleasure and prosperity. I mean, we do, and I say we, as in all of us, and we may not even recognize it. That's how I think messed up we might be. It's easy to go, yeah, those Americans out there, those out. Like, I mean, us, we, we avoid, we do everything we can to avoid suffering, to alleviate pain, to to minimize or prevent loss. We are, I think, deceived. our avoidance of suffering our efforts to avoid suffering especially as christians even the passive ones where we're not really intentionally doing it it's just kind of like happening by the things we don't do i actually think that might reveal that we are refusing to fully identify with jesus in real life beyond words It doesn't take much for someone to say, I'm a Christian today. It doesn't cost much. The American dream seems to twist our understanding of what exactly it means to to be successful in life. I mean, we like the idea which Peter says, like Jesus lived as an example to us. He gave us an example to follow. We like that idea. The good parts of the example... Like the parts where people like him. Parts where he's doing miracles and people are like, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, you gave me bread. But I'm not sure we all really want to live like Jesus. Because it's costly. Living like Jesus is going to hurt in this life. Living like Jesus means that we're going to experience loss and it means that something in our lives is going to die. God says in Christ many times we are to lose our lives in Christ so that we might find them. And insofar as we identify with Christ, like insofar as we're close to Christ, walking with Christ, following Christ, I am convinced we are actually going to suffer loss of a great many things. But here's what we have to understand. Here's what we have to believe. And I would argue that it's a good and right prayer to pray, please help my unbelief. That's a good prayer even for Christians. Christians. For believers. Help my unbelief. And the belief that I think we need most help with is to believe that Christ-like suffering is actually the pathway to joy. It's actually the pathway to salvation. It's actually the pathway into the presence of God. It is actually the means through which we truly will know Jesus. Suffering. Let's see what Peter writes. The first couple verses, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, forever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, I want you to think about this. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, God incarnate, suffered suffered he suffered unjustly he suffered horribly he suffered incomparably because of who he was he was abused he was mistreated he was falsely accused he was betrayed by friends his family thought he was nutso Anything that we may have experienced as difficult because of who he was, the Son of God, Creator, being spit upon by tongues that he made, incomparable. His suffering is incomparable. And yet, we live in a world, and I include Christians in this, where everyone believes they're a victim. Everyone believes that uh, they're oppressed by something, abused by someone. And when we look at Scripture, what we truly see is that there was really only one true victim. Jesus was the only true victim that ever lived, and he died willingly for us so that we wouldn't live like victims. Peter has already explained how Jesus approached his suffering willingly, faced it head on. Because he obeyed God perfectly, the world hated him. As I said, he endured loss. He experienced abuse. He suffered. But all the while, as he's experienced this, he didn't threaten in return. He didn't say, that's it. You're dead. I mean, he could have. It says, mindful of God. Right? He set his mind on God And he entrusted himself and his situation to God. Knowing that God sees all, God judges all, and he does so justly. And so Peter says, arm yourselves, right? That's like battle language. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now I think it's really interesting that not only is it battle language, but he doesn't necessarily say Go battle with your hands. And that's because the greatest battlefield we have actually is up here. Our problem is actually an internal one, not an external one. Our approach to suffering has little to do with anything outside of any our body, I mean our bodies, except it has to do with our minds and our hearts. There's a particular kind of thinking, a particular perspective that we need to adopt as we experience suffering thinking like jesus arming yourselves with the way jesus thought about suffering means that we will begin to act like jesus and as you begin to act like jesus you'll actually suffer more like jesus because you look very different we will start to do things very different than the world and you kind of really ask yourself what does the world call us to do Well, the world calls us to pursue comfort, pursue prosperity, pursue what's easy. The world calls us to avoid things that bring loss, avoid inconvenience, avoid self-denial. Don't deny yourself. Be yourself. Be who you are. Born this way. What does it tell you to live for? Well, live for follow your heart. Live for my passions and and live for my dreams and live for my success. And I'm not talking about the world out there, right? Let's be honest, we're guilty of much of that. Because it's easy to fall into that. But insofar as we are falling into that, I think what we're really doing is trying to think like the world and avoid... Thinking like Jesus. Because Jesus told us to seek the kingdom first. Seek the kingdom first. Now, if I were to ask any of us, what is first in your life? What's first? I kind of doubt that most of us would say His kingdom. We might say, my family. We might say our jobs. We might say our friends. We might say my passion for X. I'm not sure we would say God's kingdom is number one. Maybe if the pastor asked you, you might say that, right? But Jesus said, seek the kingdom first. Jesus said, share in my sufferings. Oh, come on, Jesus. You didn't really mean that. That sounds pretty extreme. Right? Jesus said. Deny yourselves. Follow me. And Peter has an interesting thing to say. He says, those who suffer in the flesh, those whose lives experience that kind of loss for being a Christian, call it persecution, call it just suffering as you deny yourself. He says, those who experience that kind of suffering in the flesh, in real life, whatever it looks like, have ceased from sin. You go, what? What does that mean? Well, he's not stating that anyone who becomes a Christian never struggles with sin. We know that's not true. He's stating that suffering for identifying with Christ, suffering for for being close to Christ and being a Christian who lives like and for Christ, a commitment to live for Christ, What God says and what God wants reveals something about that person. Namely, that they've broken with the world. That they've broken with the way of sin. Doesn't mean they never struggle with sin. Doesn't mean it's never tempting to look back at Egypt. It's to say that you know that's not what you want. Your desires have changed. And this isn't just passive. This isn't like, I became a Christian and oh, suddenly things just started suffering. It's actually very intentional. What do I mean? I would argue that a decision to suffer is a defining mark of being a Christian. A decision to embrace loss. A decision to deny thyself. A decision to go with less and to sacrifice is the mark of a Christian. The world will call that suffering. Jesus chose, you realize Jesus chose to suffer? He chose to suffer. He didn't have to. And when we arm ourselves with a kind of thinking like, I'm going to decide to suffer. I'm going to embrace suffering. I'm going to willingly suffer so that I can identify with Jesus. Not just so I can identify as a Christian. You hear the difference? I'm going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to walk with Jesus so closely, I'm going to live like him. Not just, I'm going to call myself a Jesus follower. When we arm ourselves with that kind of thinking, I believe we begin to experience life like Jesus did. And it's costly. I think it's a fair question to ask and Since I've asked myself this question and cried over it and gotten angry over it, I can ask you now because I've gotten beat up. It's time for your turn, right? Let's be honest for a second. And I don't have an answer for you, but I think you need to ask this question. What has your identification with Jesus cost you? What's it cost you? You've been a Christian for some time. Let's just say you've been a Christian for 25 years. What's it cost you over 25 years? Can you point to things that it's cost you? Maybe you'll be a Christian for a short amount of time. What's it cost you? What does it cost you now? What will it cost you tomorrow? Do we think that way? Man, like, if you stopped being a Christian right now, how would your life change? I think that it's very difficult in this culture. I think it's so easy for us to insulate our lives so it doesn't cost us anything. But Jesus says, Look, it should cost you socially. It it should cost you materially. It should cost you relationally if you're walking that close to me, if you're thinking like me. And you go, What is it? Okay, when we really get we're practical, I mean you're like you're like up here, Sam. Come on, like bring it down. Okay. What does it mean to think like Jesus? It means that for you, obeying God is more important than seeking comfort or avoiding sacrifice. It means that the cost of obeying God, what there is a cost, if we live in the kind of world that the Bible says we live in, there's a cost for just obeying God. But obeying God and the cost that goes with that is, is more desirable than all of the benefits of disobeying Him. It means that your thinking and your acting and even your feeling is governed by the will of God as revealed in His Word. And did you know that the will of God really, for our lives, is not difficult to figure out? like we talk about the will of God like oh what job should i take and, and and what college should i go to and you know what decision like i think there's like a ton of freedom in a lot of those things but the things that he does call us to, to call us to are really clear He calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to confess our sins. He calls us to serve and and care for the poor and the needy. He calls us to a lot of things that are really obvious. Well, Peter continues and he says, there's really only two ways to live. For self or for God. That's it. And anyone who's living for self is on a pathway away from the presence of God. The Bible calls that hell. And anyone who is endeavoring to live for God, not perfectly, but your desires are different because the Holy Spirit has changed them, that is a pathway into the presence of God, but I would argue it's a pathway that goes through some difficult things. There are many people who think they're governed by God's desires because they identify as a Christian. But I would argue that if we just look at our lives, we often can see that we're actually governed by just godlessness. Really. And it's not always the worst kind. Peter gives us a pretty ugly list here. He says, for the time that is past, this is in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Think Gentiles, not Gentiles, Jews, but just unbelievers. Time is past, there's been enough time for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We'll hold on to that piece in a second. So according to Peter's, like, look, there's been enough time to waste your life on sinful passions. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis like, quote where he talks about, why are you making mud pies in the dirt when you're offered this amazing feast with the Lord? This vacation in the hills and you're like, ooh, mud's fun. It's like there's been enough time to waste your life with sin. But he noticed that he describes like the Gentile life kind of generally as doing what you want to do. Doing what you want to do. And essentially that's what we're talking about. I want to do what I want to do. And At the core, that is the difference between a non-believer and a believer. That there's been a shift in desire completely a shift in the things you love a shift in the things you want to pursue where he's like it's not i don't want to do what i want to do i want to do what god wants me to do and if you take two people living in such a way i want to do what i want to do and i want to do what god wants to do they have to look different you're talking about a holy God and an unholy world. One lives for themselves, sometimes for their families or relationships or for some kind of community and the other lives for God, for His people, and for His mission. And let's be really honest and raw. In the flesh, it is a lot easier in this life. Much more comfortable and much less costly to do what I want to do. You will be encouraged in that. You will be affirmed in that. Follow your heart. Be who you are. You're born that way. Do what you want to do. And while you might gain some temporary comfort or popularity in this earthly life, hear me carefully, you will lose out on the eternal life and the full weight of glory that God offers you. So, insofar as we avoid suffering, in many ways, I think we avoid doing God's will and we reveal that we're really not done with sin yet. I'm not quite done with sin. And Peter says, just stop it. Did you see that YouTube video with the old Bob Newhart? He's counseling. And he basically brings someone in. He's like, my counseling costs $5. It's going to take five minutes. Okay. So she sits down, gives him $5, and he goes, stop it. (laughs) He's like, what? Just stop it. That's what Peter's like. Just, Just stop it. Don't give any more time to sin. It's killing you. It will kill you. And the list of sin he provides is, um, is certainly not a comprehensive list for all evil. But at the same time, isn't it uncanny how a 2,000-year-old list describes our culture pretty well? 2,000-year-old list. And yet when we read things like orgies, we dismiss these kinds of, oh, that, well, it doesn't apply to me, let's move on. But in the first epistle of John, he describes like, well, let me tell you about all of sin. All of sin basically falls into three categories. The desire of the eyes or lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and pride. There you go. And so all of those fit in those categories pretty easy. But those are the kinds of things that like, well, I'm not that bad. So let's change the list a little bit, shall we? It might be easier to apply or more convicting if we just talk about the amount of time we devote to certain things as evidence of what we truly love. What if his list included like voyeurism on Instagram and Facebook? Oh, no one guilty here. Excessive drinking, right? When it says drunkenness, we often are like, well, I don't get drunk. Some of you do. But when it says excessive drinking, we're talking about indulgence. Indulgence in food, indulgence in coffee, that's not possible. Anathema, what are you saying? Right? How about an indulgence in Netflix? Nothing wrong with Netflix, except when you binge for 10 hours straight daily. Just the amount of time we give to these things and we just check out of life and really waste it away. Or, you know, work idolatry. I'm sure no one's guilty of that. Sports idolatry. Oh, now you're getting Now you're getting close. And when I talk what I mean about sports idolatry or anything like that, it's like, okay, talk about the things. Consider the things that prevent you. The things that God didn't command you to do, they prevent you from doing the things God did command you to do. They hinder you from actually obeying the things He says, I want you to do this. You're like, well, I would do that, but I'm doing this. Whatever that thing's hindering you, my guess is it's an idol because it's giving you meaning, significant joy, and all these other things that the Lord says he is supposed to provide family idolatry we always are so like approving of people like well you know it's from my family and this from my family like I, I love my family but not more than Jesus pride that's a huge drawer pride in position pride in paycheck Pride in education. Pride in popular... Pride. Pride. So like, the list could be different. And when Peter says like, be done with these things, like what he's really... He's not just like, yeah, you know, stop wasting your life. He's like, repent. These things that he's talking about have become functional saviors to save you from the hell that you imagine without them. You imagine like, oh, I can't imagine not having this or this or finding the joy and now finding this. And It's like that actually is saving you from the hell that you imagine would exist if you didn't have that. That person, that job, that circumstance, whatever it is. It's an idol. And what happens is we hold on to those things to avoid Suffering. To avoid a less than experience, to avoid loss, to avoid whatever it is. And really, what's happening is we're not, we're refusing to identify with Jesus. We're actually, in in order to avoid suffering, to keep ourselves from loss, we're actually keeping ourselves from Jesus who says, You got to lose your life and you'll find it in me. So, when we decide to live like Jesus and for Jesus, we're naturally going to look different about how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy. All those things are going to look different because you have a a completely different mentality. Seeking God's kingdom first means you're investing in eternal things. And Peter says, You know what? The world's going to look at you and go, What is wrong with you? He says, like, they're surprised when you don't do as they do. And we think of, like, you know, like, orgies and drinking parties. Like, that's the easy stuff. Because at some level, even the world's like, yeah, I don't know. But when you start living like Jesus and making sacrifices that are weird and loving in ways that are like, why why would you forgive them? How could you forgive that? How could you love that person? How could you serve that person? The world's like, what? So here's a great question to ask yourself. And this is the kind of one you cry about in the closet. Is the world surprised by how you live? Right? Is, is, some have said it this way. Is there a gospel or a Jesus explanation that's required for your life? Like when you live... And I don't mean like you know uh, like when you come to church on Sundays and your neighborhood knows that, or that you have a Jesus flag flapping on your garage, and they're like, "Oh, that guy loves Jesus clearly because he's got a fish on the back of his car." Not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea that like how you live, how you relate to people, how you spend your money, your energy, your time—all these things—people go, "Well, that's surprising. I, I don't normally see that." My fear is that the world is no longer surprised by Christians because we don't live very different than the world anymore. And it doesn't have to be the most evil things that I'm talking about. In Peter's day, like, it looked very different. And the believers, as, as they stopped engaging in the things that he listed there, they were like, what is going on? They were totally puzzled. But then they became Outraged. Because they felt like their refusal to participate was a condemnation on them. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Like you say nothing. You know, I can't do that or I'm not going to do that. And they're like, oh, high and mighty are you? Think you're better than me? Didn't say that. Don't think that. Oh, you are saying that by saying nothing. And so what happens is puzzling in their time turned to attack it says they were slandered. They were maligned. The world, and even I would argue sometimes the so-called believing world, is going to slander anyone standing for and living according to God's word like Jesus did. And again, I start asking myself, Gosh, when is the, have I ever been slandered? And here's the thing with me, right? I've been slandered for being a pastor, but what if I wasn't a pastor? Not everyone knows I'm a pastor. Am I slandered for being a Christian? Like someone could look up my name on a website and go, you're a pastor. Like, okay, you probably believe these things and I can listen to your sermons and see what you, you know, hate or whatever. But like just as a Christian, have I ever been slandered because of my standing up for Jesus? Am I more interested in being liked than rocking the boat, right? And the thing about being liked, Jesus like warned against that. He's like, be careful when everyone likes you. Now, I don't want to be hated. I like to be liked. I like to be loving and, and hopefully relate, you know, with, with believers and non-believers. I, I'm a nice man, nice person. They like me, but like, at some level, you're not going to be liked. And if you're liked by everyone, there's reason for concern. Matthew chapter 5, which may have been read last week, Jesus said, blessed, 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 happy are you when others revile you. What? And persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He He adds the on my account piece. Because if you're slandered for being a jerk, maybe that was warranted but if it's on account of identifying with Jesus, He says, rejoice and be glad because you're going to have blessing in this life. Nope. I added that part. Rewind. (laughs) Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So what does Jesus say? Uh, Insofar as you identify with me, you're going to experience loss. You're going to be slandered you're going to suffer but rejoice and be glad it's going to get better no nope. rejoice and be glad there's a reward in heaven for you which gives me some real perspective of what i should expect or feel entitled to in this life we're an entitled bunch i'm an entitled person i feel like things should be easy i feel like my role as a pastor should be easy I feel like being a husband should be, I I love Jesus, why aren't things easy? And he's like, things aren't going to be easy. But they're going to be awesome in heaven. And so, dare I say, we need to be glad about our decision to suffer. He reminds us to lift our eyes. As Peter said, set your mind on the hope yet to come. He tells us not only that a decision for Jesus matters, but actually perseverance in that decision matters. Anyone can make a decision for Jesus. Oh, I, I love Jesus. I'm baptized with Jesus. I accept in my heart 17 times. It's perseverance in that moment. It's perseverance in like, I'm going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to walk with Jesus even though it's hard. And as much as we watch this unbelieving world like seemingly succeeding in their debauchery, like, man, like that, that guy didn't love Jesus and he's doing great. That's hard. Because like you're a person making sacrifices, like, think about Noah, right? Making these great sacrifices, working hard for the Lord, and they're playing in the fields. You're know, like That one's fun. I like to play in the fields. But building the ark is the path to salvation. Building the ark and and devoting yourself to the Lord and identifying even in the midst of mockery and, and difficulty is the path to joy. It's to bring us closer to the Lord. But he says, look, as you see this unbelieving world doing everything it can to avoid suffering and pursue pleasure, and as even endure slander for not participating, he says, Judgment's coming. No one gets away with anything. And it is the grace of God that restrains and withholds judgment. Peter will talk about that. God's not slow, He's gracious. But judgment is coming. And so you have a choice, we have a choice. You either endure the judgment of the world with Jesus right now, or you experience, from, experience judgment from Jesus in the next life. Like you have that phrase, life is short? Life is short. Play hard. Life is short, judgment is not. We're talking about eternity. And we want to focus on this speck of 70 years of life and go, I got to get as much as I can out of that. I don't care about that. I care about this. As he closes in the last verse, it says, The world is full of judgment, but there is only one judge. And Peter concludes, This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are by the world, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So what's he talking about? People who are dead. He alludes to these dead people. And I believe he's talking about believers who have died naturally, many of them, but some possibly at the hands of the world. At this point, persecution is starting, but there's a full wave of persecution that's going to come under Nero. Peter himself will die being crucified upside down. Paul will be beheaded. And there will be many Christians that die in the most brutal of ways. As one commentator wrote, sharp words eventually become sharp swords. And the death of a Christian... At least naturally, like when a Christian died, right, you got these people believing that, like, you have life in Jesus and life eternally, and then they die. And the non believing world's like, well, how did believing in Jesus help them? They still died. And they even saw it as proof that believing in Jesus didn't matter, that the one who followed Jesus was no better off. And that would be true if death were the end. But doesn't the resurrection of Jesus, what we will celebrate in two weeks, the most important part of our faith, the, the you know, cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like that shows us different. That shows us that there is a life to come. That living in this life matters insofar as eternity matters. The recently deceased evangelist Billy Graham. There was a quote that went around shortly after he died. It was powerful and simple and good. And you probably heard it. Billy Graham had said at one point Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I'll have just changed my address and I will have gone into the presence of God. That is what Christians believe. And that is why they seek the kingdom first. And that is why they embrace whatever sufferings that come and make a decision to suffer with Jesus so that they can be in his presence with him. But that's only part of the gospel, the resurrection. It's the part we love to celebrate. It's the new life aspect that we want to rejoice in but it's not the full gospel because the resurrection is preceded by a couple things it's preceded by the sinless life of Jesus which for 30 plus years was pretty hard he endured a lot of difficulty he endured betrayal and abuse and being falsely accused and all these things and then He was killed. He was murdered by the world because he did what was good and did what was right and did what was honoring to God perfectly. And so we can't forget that part of the gospel. Like, we want to rush ahead to the resurrection and forget that fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus, sharing in those sufferings. See, in Peter's day, those who In the midst of a wicked world, those who had devoted their lives much like Noah had done, believing in God's Word and even believing in the truth of eternal life, they were judged. They were, if not literally, figuratively crucified by the world. And in Peter's day, those who had actually died and had been all in for Jesus, they had probably been in their life and asked, afterwards judged as pitiful and weird, confused, out of touch with reality, or worse. And as I said, some Christians would lose their lives in the most brutal ways, and some Christians lose their lives today. There are Christians dying in the world for being Christian. Today, we're so insulated in this American culture of tolerance, which isn't very tolerant, but tolerance, it's unlikely that we will experience that kind of persecution. It's possible. And if that day comes where we are called to lose our life for Jesus, we are expected to embrace that moment. Like if you live for Jesus, you might be called to die for your faith. I think it might be unlikely in this world if you live and remain in this culture. But if God doesn't call you to lose your life, I assure you He is calling you to lose your lifestyle. It's amazing how Christians be oh I will stand for Jesus. I would lose my life for Jesus. Well, he may not call you lose your life. How about just your lifestyle? Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, but you said you'd lose your life. I know, but my lifestyle means I might have to like like live differently. Yeah. You might. You might have to spend your time differently and your energy differently and your money differently. Crucify my lifestyle? Oh, that's costly. No, that's Christian. That's Christian. And I don't know what that looks like for you because I don't know everyone's lifestyles. I have to ask myself that question for me. Because I know that many think like, well, you're a professional Christian, right? You're paid to be like Jesus. I got to ask myself those same questions. Like, because, dare I say, it's easier perhaps for me to make an excuse not to live for Jesus because I have others expecting me to. It's costly, without doubt. Matthew 10, Jesus tells us something that we don't like to hear, which is actually pretty common with Jesus, but he says, Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. He came to bring peace between men and God, not to the earth. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I don't remember reading that. Can you imagine Jesus saying this? Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to make things peaceful, guys. I'm bringing a sword. And then he keeps going. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies are going to be those of his own household. What? Cost. Then he says, whoever loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now he didn't say whoever loves their mother and father, whoever loves their children is not worthy of me. That's not what he said. He said, if whoever loves blank, put, it, put anything in the blank you want, more than me is not worthy of me. Whatever thing that is that you're not willing to lose because it's more important to you than Jesus needs to die figuratively verse 39 says whoever finds his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will find it Jesus wants us to lose our lives for him to spend our lives for him and we have to ask ourselves some questions for those of us who say that we are Christian for those who say I identify with Jesus what have you lost what have you choose, chosen to lose? Anything? Everything? But I would say there's a second question you have to ask as well because it's very easy, and let me be a little confessional as your pastor. Occasionally, I throw myself a little pity party. Maybe you do that too. As you consider all the things that you don't have and you feel like you should. And I love to admit, you know, well, but I, you know, get beyond that really easily. never comes back. I can count lots of losses. There's times when I romanticize my life as a teacher. Oh, I remember my summer's off. So glorious. I remember when no one complained about anything. And if they did complain, I'd give them a D. I didn't care. (laughs) I could give you guys grades if you'd like. But you romanticize and it's a pity party as you count the losses. And so like, it's not like our approach isn't supposed to be like, yes, I've lost for Christ. The second question is like, what's your attitude towards those losses? How do you hold those losses really? Because that might reveal what you really think about loss with Christ. I would call us to consider what Paul wrote as he considers his own sense of loss. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians is a rad book, written from a guy in prison calling us to rejoice. And he says in Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. As he reflects on all the good things he did have and has lost. Earthly things. And he says, more than that though, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but garbage in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Hmm. Not having a righteousness of my own Derived from what I did good, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him. I can't everything is lost and garbage that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Uh, that phrase... I didn't even notice that phrase when I wrote the sermon earlier. In that first service, I'm like, oh, Lord. Because you think of fellowship? Like, hey, guys, come over. Let's have some fellowship. Let's hang out together with suffering. Wait a second. What? Fellowship of sufferings. Embracing suffering. Suffering close. Why is that? Because as you have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, you have Christ. You have intimacy with him being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. God wants us to lose our lives in Christ so that we might find it. And insofar as we identify with Christ, we suffer the loss of a great many things. But we must understand and believe that Christ-like suffering and loss is the pathway to joy. And it's the pathway to salvation and it's the pathway into the presence of God that we might truly know Him and truly depend on Him and truly know His love for us. As much as we try to avoid suffering, it's often the very thing we need. Because suffering, as I heard Johnny Erickson taught us say, I'm going to twist it a little bit. I would say suffering in every form is the tool that God uses to drive us to the cross, the place where we wouldn't normally go otherwise. For those who don't know Jesus, I would argue that you are suffering worse than all of us. And you think you're avoiding something. And I would say the only thing you're avoiding is life. True purpose, true joy, true hope that can never be taken away even in death. And I'd invite you to trust Jesus with your life. And for those of us who do know Jesus, who claim to identify, yes, He's my Lord and my Savior, I want you to understand that as we come up, and we this is for believers, the table is is for us where we have the cup and the bread where we see Jesus' blood shed for our sin. And Jesus, the Son of God's body, broken for our sin. We see that our sin is so ugly and broken that it took the suffering and death of the Son of God to cover it. And yet we are so loved that the Son of God willingly suffered for us. And so as you come up, don't go through the routine, right? Sometimes we sing songs, we go through routines, and we've done it so many times that we're not even thinking about what we're doing. As you come up, I want you to really consider that as, as you take that bread and you dip it in that cup, you are confessing something and it is, yes, I am redeemed. It means you're bought. You're not your own. And it says, I identify with you, Jesus. I am yours and you are mine. And as you lift that, you are making a decision. I am deciding to suffer. And that has tangible Consequences. But insofar as you walk with Jesus and identify with Jesus and fellowship with his sufferings, you will know Jesus deeply and powerfully, and you will be with Jesus eternally. Amen. Let's pray.